0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I got this feeling inside my bones. It goes electric, wavy, when I turn it on. Off from of my city, off from of my home. We're flying up, no ceiling when we in our zone. I got that sunshine in my pocket. got that
1: good soul. Hey, Gary Trust here at RCA Records offices here in New York City, about 20 blocks from Billboard. And a great guest with us this week, Joe Riccatelli, Executive VP, GM of RCA.
2: Yeah, it's. Uh, we just moved into this building about six weeks ago from uh, up at 550 Madison Avenue. And right. really love this new building and the area in general. But the thing I do, it's a historical building, and they did a great job revamping it. And one of the things I like about it is the fact that we're all together now on one floor. RCA used to be spread out over four different floors. Um, since our merger back almost six years ago now. And um, the fact that the entire company is on the one floor really does make a difference with communication and camaraderie and vibe and team spirit. So it's been great.
1: And the other Sony labels are here with All all of
2: us are here. Um, Epic is one floor down. Columbia is on 21. Um, we have the Sony ATV, our publishing arm, one floor up. Um, corporate's here. Sony Electronics is here. Sony Television, Sony Pictures. So I think we go from the 20th floor up through twenty-eight. So, uh, yeah, the entire company's here now.
1: Is there collaboration between the labels on any level? If you're in the same building, You're in some ways you're competing labels, but you're also all under the Sony umbrella.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's really the most important thing. I think that when Doug got to the company, Doug Morris, who runs Sony Music, um, one of the things he wanted to make sure is that we did corroborate with each other even though we are competitive to a certain extent if we're not going to get something as long as they get some uh, what epic or, or columbia does that's really what matters most is to you know make sure our market share sony's market share is, is strong and that's really what we'd like to focus in on and i have great relationships with uh, joel clayman and todd glassman i've known for a very long time la reed obviously
1: it's a similar my background in radio when uh, stations uh, that maybe uh, hated each other for years. all of a sudden they're both owned uh, by iHeart Media. Suddenly, your friends are in the family. So, I, I, I get that.
2: Yeah, you can see that really with radio across the country in general. Some of those turf battles that we used to see maybe a decade or so ago have kind of dissipated over the years. When I was doing local radio in Dallas, I still remember this to, to this day. The Eagle and Y95, they were two top 40 stations in the market, real mortal enemies, and they were both in high rise buildings in Las Colinas, Texas. And they had. At Y ninety five, they had targets like almost like scopes from a rifle on their windows, pointed in the direction of K E G L. And you know those battles are legendary. Some of those battles back in the day.
1: So nothing like that going on here between floors. You know? definitely like, not on not Zealand, here. On there the might floor. be some
2: battles going on between us and up uh, uptown there with our our competitor Universal, but <laughs> not so much with Sony.
1: Right, I don't see any targets on the building. No so. targets. All right, we're safe. Well, uh, Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Um, a big thing we want to do here on the podcast is really just explain what record labels do, what different uh, facets of the industry do. Um, what exactly is your job as executive VP, GM of RCA?
2: Um, well, I oversee all of our promotional efforts outside of urban music. We have uh, Geo Bivens, who oversees our urban division. But I see all of our promo- oversee our promotional efforts on pop, rock, alternative, adult uh, those formats in particular. I also um, oversee our licensing division. Um, Karen Lamberton's our senior vice president of licensing, extremely important in the scheme of things when you're trying to make a hit record. And I oversee our branding division, our, our branding and marketing division, Not not so much the marketing department overall, but our branding division of the marketing department. Um, I have roughly about 36 people, 37 people that report into me. Um, Promotion is primarily where I spend most of my time. Both my two senior vice presidents in branding and in in licensing are amazing A-plus players, so they handle their departments, and if they really need me to come in and help them with something or anything, I'm there for them on that level. Promotion takes up pretty much 24-7.
1: So you're not necessarily uh, on the side of uh, when Britney Spears is uh, starting to think about her next album. You're not talking to her about what songs, what direction. You come in a little bit later in the process, or you're part of everything?
2: Well, it, with it's interesting you ask that question. Because promotion plays such an integral role in launching and, and really keeping the projects moving all the way through from from the day we launch our first single right through the end of their tours, because we're very involved on a local level with uh, touring when the artists are out there as well. Um, I am involved with, with a lot of the artists in discussions, and, and I do hear things very early on. Um, I was just in the studio with, with Max Martin and Pink just two weeks ago talking about the Pink project that we're getting ready to start to put together. And we just released the first single off of Alice Through the Looking Glass, um, which will be out around Memorial Day weekend. And um, we do spend time listening and talking about things. And I think the input that I am able to give them is kind of the landscape of where radio is right now and and kind of the the shifts that I see out there. Um, And, you know, artists, uh, they're going, artists need to be, Creative on their own level and take little input for, input from me, but maybe just have a sense in the back of their mind of okay, this is what the landscape is out there right now.
1: Although we were talking about pink, that's an interesting case because a couple of years ago you guys put out a folk album by Pink under a completely different name. That's about as left field a turn as you could take, and you guys supported that.
2: Of course. I mean, Pink is a, an extremely important artist for this company, and for not just this company, but for music in general. She's an artist that stays true to her heart. And that you want that artistry in the artists that you have signed to the label. Um, she is extremely strong-willed and passionate and stubborn and lovable and and competitive and the things that I admire in her, those are all the qualities I admire, and unbelievably creative. Right. and A very gifted lyricist. Um, and, um, you know, when she put out that, that particular LP, um, we did it with Dine Alone Records up in Canada, you know, fantastic artists up there in Dallas Green, and um, it was something that I kind of feel like she was working towards that project, you know, in between the truth about love and where we're headed right now, and um, it's kind of really close to her heart. And I think that artists need to have that creative freedom to, to be and do whatever they want to do. And our job isn't to kind of you know, put them in a lane or anything like that. Our job is to take that vision and her voice and try to promote it. My job, anyway, is to try to promote what she's giving me.
1: Well, you wouldn't want an artist who didn't have that kind of vision. Absolutely. If they just came in and said, you tell me what you want on my album. That's, That's probably right. not what you want. That's 100% right.
2: That's exactly what we wouldn't, wouldn't want. And uh, that's our best artists are that way. Um, and uh, that's the thing about RCA. I think Peter Edge and Tom Corson, who run the company, and really, we let our artists have a wide, wide lane. There's no blinders or blinkers. They do what they want, and we try to really work within those perimeters.
1: RCA is, is, is the second oldest label in the U.S. after Columbia?
2: Yeah, uh, it's been around for a, a long time. Uh, General David Zarnoff started RCA, Radio Corporation of America, back, I guess it was the early, must be early 20s, maybe late teens. Um, and, and as you know, Nipper's been our mascot for a long time. And uh, it's fantastic that this particular company, this, this newer version of RCA Records was formed with the merging of J and Jive. RCA and Arista. Those four labels really did come together. And if you take a look at the roster, uh, it's probably as competitive, if not the most competitive roster out there. Whether it's Alicia Keys or whether it's Pink uh, or whether it's Bryson Tiller, who's happening right now, um, or G-Eazy, who has a big hit, or even signing Zane over from One Direction. I kind of feel like we do span the spectrum. And if you look at on our rock side as well, you know, Foo Fighters are probably second to none. Kings of Leon, who have had a really good runner in the studio right now. Um, And some of the other stuff that we've really been working on, Jack Antonoff of Bleachers has a lot of creative freedom to do what he wants to do, coming off of fun and signing him in here. We are like that, that canvas that you just throw the paint on it, you know, and it comes out the way
1: it comes out. It uh, mirrors your office here. I'm looking around. There's, uh, there's Al King. There's Justin Timberlake. Yeah. There is, is this the official SIA wig that I'm looking at, Joe?
2: That is, that is the very first SIA wig. Um, from the last project. And um, when we went to MTV to actually promote her, to put her on the VMAs, I actually wore that wig in the meeting, and I got a real kick out of the MTV staff when we did it. And Sia, and I'm glad you brought Sia up, because to me I think that she is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Um, I signed her to RCA Records. You probably don't know that. I knew Sia um, about six or seven years ago when we had a licensing agreement from the album We Are Born which the UK actually signed but never released the album. We released the album here and I became friends with her and introduced her to her manager, Jonathan Daniels, over at Crush. And uh, I have a, a really long standing relationship with her. And um, she is an artist that I will go th- walk through walls, break through walls on to get her vision across because, again, it's her vision, it's not my vision, it's not RCA's vision. So it's super important that. We follow her, and uh, we try to break those, those barriers down and try to get her into the mainstream, which is, you know, which is my biggest challenge sometimes.
1: And you offer wig advice, apparently.
2: You know, well, I didn't, um, she came up with the half black, half white wig for this new project on her own. But the wig, the wig idea really was hers from the beginning. Because if you know her, and if you go back and look, she always had that blonde bob cut even going back on the album before that. Right. And, it, and her idea was to use the wig, and um, our product um, vice president, Val Pensa, who is the product manager on this particular project, worked closely with Crush and Sia, and we've followed it ever since, and it's been kind of a fun one. Ouch, I have lost myself again. Lost myself
0: again.
1: Remember hearing Breathe Me on the Six Feet Under. Yeah. The finale is is going back more than ten years ago. Mm-hmm. So that she's had all this pop success since then hasn't surprised me because I always knew how great that song was.
2: It's really interesting because she did not think that she was going to get that song on Six Feet Under. They got a call after the fact. The show was going to production. It was the the very last episode of the entire series, which was a phenomenal series. Um, and the week before She got a phone call saying they were going to use it for the closing sequence, and she didn't even know exactly how it was going to be used. And the most interesting thing was she was signed to a small label that was distributed by one of the other majors, and they actually dropped her from the label two weeks before that that actually hit. So then she was a free agent at that point and ended up, I think, um, with her next record on Astral Works or one of the small capital subsidiaries. And she's always been, you know, kind of bounced around a little bit. Um, The album, Some People Have Real Problems, was distributed by Starbucks. So she signed with them for one album as well. We had the We Are Born album at Jive. And now the last two records have come through RCA.
1: And is she really as shy as she seems? Because there aren't she's not shy many other artists that she don't want to n- be seen like She, she
2: is like not she... shy. When you really talk to her in person, she talks a mile a minute. Her personality is like level 10. Uh, she is so endearing. She is so funny. She is so quick-witted. She's so talented. Uh, in fact, right here, this is a screenplay that she sent over for us for a movie that she's going to be working on next for her next project. Ah. So she is, she is is she's one in a million. She really is. And, and if you've heard her being interviewed before, she's done interviews with Elvis and she's done interviews with Seacrest. She can write a song literally in 15 minutes. Right. That's how talented she is. And it's just a gift.
1: So where does the not showing her face come from?
2: The not showing her face really does come from the fact that she does not want to be famous. She does not want to be famous. The one lunch that we had in between the We Are Born album and the Thousand Forms of Fear album, right when she joined Crush, was she made a decision. She did not want to be an artist anymore, and she wanted to be a songwriter. Okay, and that's kind of where Jonathan was able to help her uh, with the um, with the both the Titanium record and the um, Flow Rider record, which she was on the vocal. She wrote obviously those two tracks, um, but she ultimately. Um, Didn't want to really stay on the track And I'm glad that she did stay on the track Because it actually did really bring her back to Helping us launch the project in general And she wrote the song And besides being an amazing writer She might be one of the best vocalists of our time So she really is a one in a million
1: And part performance artist as well.
2: The performance artist this weekend. I know this is going to run after Coachella, but if you watch and go back and and anybody can pull up the Coachella performances from this past weekend and the weekend coming up, um, you're going to see some incredible performance art. Now, she's going to be touring that as well. She's going to be playing in Boston on the Boston Calling show over Memorial Day weekend, and she's going to be here in New York for the Panorama Festival. Um, Those will be two other places you can actually see those performances. And I did get a chance to see It over the weekend online. I haven't seen a performance art like that show, performance art show, because it's really performance art uh, in a very, very long time. And you can even see, like we were just looking at the iTunes numbers, that increase on iTunes single sales that we were just looking at is coming from Coachella.
1: Right. Yeah, uh, Cheap Thrills has uh, become a big hit. Probably going to keep worldwide uh, getting bigger. It just went to number
2: one in Germany. It was her first number one single in Germany, and um, she we're trying to break it here in America as well. It's a little bit slow because American radio right now, which is very very conservative, I'm sure you're hearing that from a lot of people that you're talking to. But the truth is, I really believe that come the end of this summer, this is going to be one of the biggest songs of the summer.
1: Here's a question I always wonder about record labels. I feel like I get a different answer different times. Who picks the singles from albums?
2: It's a combination. You know, if you're a newer artist and you're just starting, um, artists, all artists have vision. We try to work with them on on what we feel would be the right thing. But if you're Justin Timberlake, you're probably coming in with the song that will be the single, and you're basically saying this is going to be the single. So I think it's a case-by-case basis. There's input on both sides. Um, you know, working with Britney right now as we're getting ready to hone in on a single, uh, the input that I'm giving Britney and Larry, uh, Larry Rudolph, uh, Reindeer, Adam Lieber, the team, um, from really going out there and playing music for people, that input really becomes important. Um, but it's not the end-all be-all because artists have visions, and, like, again, we would really try to follow that.
1: All right, we'll go uh, kind of one by one through a bunch of artists on the RCA roster as we uh, go through here on the podcast with uh, Joe Riccatelli, Executive VP, GM of RCA Records. Uh, I want to ask how you got your start, uh, Joe, in the business. But for, first of all, what's, what's your daily uh, schedule like? You said you're, a lot of it is promotion, a lot of it talking to radio, right, and, and your staff who talks to I'm radio. I'm
2: sure uh, you're doing a lot of these interviews you're finding, and I'm sure for even yourselves, you were just telling me that you're writing the Hot 100 chart on Sundays now. Our lives have really become 24-7, and um, so I'm working on the weekends just like you are because information is coming in all day long, every day. It's all real time, and you're assessing that information. My schedule really, like today, for example, we were just looking at the iTunes Priority Report because, as you know, SoundScan will be released on Monday now as opposed to when it was released on Wednesday. Due to global street date. Due to global street date, which I actually really have... At first, I wasn't sure how that was going to play out. I'm very happy with it, though, very happy with the way it's working out. And um, for a variety of reasons, I feel like that information from an airplay standpoint becomes more timely. When SoundScan was coming out on Wednesday, the radio week had just completed, so there's five or six days in between. Now the information is coming in as we're going in and promoting radio, and it's just really making a big difference for us, and I'm sure for the programmers making decisions. Um, So my day, it varies every day. Um, I'm giving direction to the field. Uh, we have a field staff, Uh, my promotion department's about 25 total people. Uh, I have about eight field reps out there, nine field reps out there, a balance of about eight or nine national reps that oversee specific.
0: Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: So my direction on a Monday and Tuesday is really putting into radio decisions and decisions that are being made. Our Wednesdays are still spent basically analyzing information, analyzing the week, getting ready to really get into another week. The Fridays, like today, I'm looking at the single sales numbers that are coming in from iTunes. Mondays now, because of Shazam's importance in the scheme of things, we we use BDS for the Hot 100 chart and it becomes important. and, and, And just for the record, the Billboard Hot 100 chart is still the artist chart. That is what what artists really focus on. Um, But Shazam is now being published Via media base and so that information we're seeing on a monday on a market by market basis and the reason why radio really cares about that it's become the instant gratification for them so if they're playing something and they see it shazamming within a week or 10 days or two weeks they know that they're getting reaction from their airplay so we'll spend a lot of time on doing that as well in my department um and uh you know i spend a lot of time with the artist managers uh, you know going through promotion plans and releases
1: you said uh, radio is a little bit more conservative, you think, than ever before. It still has such a great reach. It's 243 million people a week, I think, uh, use radio, according to Nielsen. What's your take on the state of radio right now?
2: Well, radio still moves the needle more and quicker than anything else does. And you can see it immediately when airplay is out there, and you will see Shazams, and you will see Spotify streams, and you will see single downloads, and... Um, I think that the the funny thing with radio is while they were really nervous of streaming and thinking streaming is a competitor, you can look around the world right now and look at a country like Sweden where streaming is actually helping radio make decisions and helping them um, narrow down what they're choosing to play because they see it reacting when they're playing it. So um, I feel like radio still is as important as it has been over the last five decades. Uh, I think, though, that ultimately how they go about making decisions and what they're playing has changed. And the fact that you're seeing it become more of a business than maybe it was on the HBO show vinyl. So, you know, where it's, you know, a little bit of a free-for-all there. And it may have been a free-for-all in the 70s. It's not a free-for-all now.
1: It's much bigger business now.
2: Much bigger business now. And there are plans, really strategic plans in place with release dates and timing and focusing on specific radio stations and even chains working a specific chain on a record, whether it's CBS or iHeart or Entercom or Cumulus.
1: You talked about how streaming uh, in many places has overtaken sales. The the, the big question pretty much for any labels nowadays, you guys are not in the heyday of sales like you were in in 2000 when, when NSYNC and Britney and Christina were selling millions and millions of albums how do you guys on a a daily basis uh, deal with, with having to hit those bottom lines well
2: 2000 was an incredible year i was at jive records overseeing promotion then and we had britney nsync backstreet boys all out in those years and had maybe one of the best years in the history of the music business at that time we're not the only business that faces this every business television is facing it movies are facing it movies are able to raise the ticket price to show what their gains really are but the truth is It's less people, but they're raising their prices and they're getting away with it. We don't have the luxury of being able to raise our price. We have to lower our price. And it still is funny to me that you can buy, you know, two cups of coffee at Starbucks for about $6, but you're not going to spend $6 on owning music. Part of that comes really from the fact that, and I have 19-year-old sons. My sons do not buy music. They stream it. They don't care about ownership. They care about access. So the fact is is that you can access anything you want right now at your fingertips on Spotify. Anything you want at your fingertips on Apple Music. Those are the two things that we're very big proponents of. We have had to adjust our, our business model, obviously, like every business has, whether you're print media, as Billboard has had to do, right. um, with Billboard.com now becoming just as important as the magazine itself. Right,
1: Billboard Music Awards, all Absolutely. different. Absolutely, and,
2: and you're, you, the fact that you've diversified your business, which right. is what we've done as well. So I think, really, it's about kind of being able to um, not only diversify your business, but change your business model. And if you think you're going to be making money hand over fist, you're not there are still companies out there that are going to be formed and made that will but this is not one of them so um... which is fine and i still am as passionate about breaking music and breaking songs and breaking artists as i was thirty years ago when i actually started and i think that that's what my place is is really there for the artists to expose their music and get their music out to the mainstream none of that stuff has changed hits are still hit records hits drive sales all those things still take place Streaming is a part of a hit record now, as much if not more so than ever before. And that will continue to be the case. Buying music or having owning music does not become as important when you can get it on your smartphone.
1: But how do you keep uh, that income up when artists aren't making anywhere near the same levels from streaming as they are from sales?
2: They still make it from touring. and, And that still becomes a big part of it. And touring comes from hit records. Right. And building your touring base... Is still as big, an uh, important part of it as being an artist, and the income that you're getting from a record label may not be the same income that we saw back, uh, uh, you know, 1999 or 2000. It obviously is not the case, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't. It's still not an important tool for the artist in general, and that's why we spend this time, you know, whether it was, you know, Justin Timberlake has just been up here a couple times just getting ready for a soundtrack, or, you know, like I just mentioned about being with Pink for a few weeks, or Bryson Tiller being up here just the last couple days, that communication is still so important between the label and the artist and the artist and the label.
1: And diversification, you said, too, uh, uh, sync deals happen now that didn't happen the same way 10, 15 years. There's no
2: doubt about it. If you go back and look at the current single, We're Working Grace, You Don't Own Me, there was a sync in Australia that ultimately launched that single. And Nova, which is, you probably know, Gary, is the biggest, not the biggest, one of the biggest radio stations in Australia, picked up off the sync. And as soon as the airplay came off of that sync, we saw sales immediately in the combination of the sync. Over Christmas there was a huge sync for the same song that made a very, very big difference for us um, getting that track launched with Radio 1 uh, and ultimately, and again, with Capital Radio. You go back and look at that song over the Christmas holidays and the airplay that it received, it started with the sync. Once the airplay got involved, the same thing. Now, here in the U.S., it's a little bit different. We started with the airplay, but we actually had a sync two weeks ago from the film Suicide Kings, which is going to be a big film this summer. Um, when we got the, When we actually got the sync, we saw single sales increased dramatically, and Shazam increased dramatically, and streams this week went over a million for the first time. So it's that combination of AirPlay and Sync. So like you're talking about that diversification or those other channels, that's really where it comes from. How'd you get your start in the business, Joe? I went to William Patterson College in Wayne, New Jersey at the time. It was a communications school that focused on TV and radio production. I was on air at WPSC, which is the college radio station there, for four years And I was the public relations director my senior year. got an internship at Polygram Records in the spring of 1985. And literally, I was in the right place at the right time and was hired as an advertising clerk because they needed an entry-level position. Uh, My first paycheck was $250 a week. I think I made $13,000 a year. But I got into the business, which is what I wanted because I loved the internship so much. I loved the chemistry and the vibe and the excitement of – music. And I always wanted to break music. Growing up, I listened to 77 ABC every day. And it was the station that helped me really kind of hone in on hit songs in general. It was really exciting for me. Um, so I was hired in Polygram. They had an opening for a college radio uh, manager. I took that job. I worked under Brenda Romano and David Leach and John Betancourt and some of the great promotion people of that era and still Brenda today. Right. And they moved me out into the field. I did field promotion in Charlotte and Dallas and Boston. Um, this is now the early 90s when the music business was really exploding. So Polygram, Polygram started a second promotion staff, which was Polydor Records. Okay, so I was made a national top 40 for Polydor Records in 1991.
1: And who were you working? Uh, who were the artists you were working back
2: then? The artists I was working with at that time, they were all baby artists that I don't think any of them are really around today at all. But what ended up happening was Alan Levy came to Polygram nineteen ninety one or ninety two and formed the Polygram label group. Right. So Island Records and AM Records were purchased at that time and Motown. We ended up with Island Records. So the first thing I really worked on under that group was U2, Octune Baby. Um, and that was one of the first projects that I had worked and that was what, 1992 or 93? Uh, I became Vice President of Promotion in '93 and Senior Vice President of Promotion in 1995. And I've been ahead of promotion from 1995 up to now. So that's got to be, what,
1: 20-plus years, 22 years. Right. You you were just honored by uh, William Patterson University. I actually heard uh, Scott Shannon on CBS FM uh, the day before we taped this uh, yesterday morning. Mentioned you on the air. Did he really? Yeah. I, like, I, I love know, Scott. I know who that is.
2: I love Scott. I didn't even know he did that. He's, <laughs> he's a mentor for me, obviously, because Z100 was one of the first stations that I was really promoting back when I became national top 40 in the 90s. Oh, okay. I learned so much from Scott and from Steve, from Scott Shannon and Steve Kingston. To this day, what I know about promotion and how to promote properly, I learned from them. Um, they're, you know, a b- b- bunch of radio mentors in my life, but those are two in particular. That's really flattering that he mentioned that. I didn't know.
1: Uh, Give away your secrets. What is the secret to good promotion?
2: Well, and just I was honored last night by William Patterson as the Legacy Award winner. William Patterson has an incredible music program. It's only about twenty miles outside of the city. They have maybe the best creative jazz music program out there. And they just about ten years ago they started a music business program, and they're one of three schools that offer a master's degree in music business. So I've been really wanting to give back to them, and we raised about a quarter of a million dollars for scholarships. Uh, William Patterson's a state school in New Jersey. New Jersey's. New Jersey subsidized scholarship rules are a little bit different than other states, and it's not that easy for kids to get scholarships. So that was a really important thing for us last night. So um, as far as secrets in the business, being passionate, being competitive, being honest. It's really those three things. And, you know, I think that, that that's what artists want. Artists want you to be honest with them. They don't want things sugar-coated. Well, they might a little bit. But uh, they want things. They want to know, like, what's really going on. And I, I always speak from the heart. Um, and I think that that's really carried me a long way, and I really just try to be honest with everybody I deal with.
1: In promoting to radio, like we, always, we sometimes joke at Billboard, when we'll like in, in, in an edit meeting, uh, we'll bring up a, a new act, and we'll say, oh, uh, that's a priority for the label. And then the joke is always, well, every act is a priority for the label. There's that element of, of salesmanship when you're trying to promote an act. To me, I
2: actually can't go out there and bullshit it. I yeah. just can't. Yeah. So... To me, I have to find the angle and the right way to still be myself when I'm promoting it, even if it's like I can't walk into Z100 with a new artist and say, this is a smash. It's going to be the biggest record out there. you got to trust me on this because Z100 knows me, right? and I know Z100. So the way that you have to go about something like that is really building a case. And you build cases now, like we were just discussing, with streaming numbers, the viral 50 chart, Shazam, digital single sales, touring. And that's really how I build my case. I'm like no different than a lobbyist or an attorney when you're you know, presenting something.
1: That's, that's a good point. It's, it, it is being honest. It's letting the story tell
2: itself. It, and that's what has to happen because it's so competitive out there. Uh, and you may know this, Gary, but I've been doing research. Top 40 mainstream radio over the last six months have been averaging about 2.4 to 2.6 ads per station. You think of all the releases out there on a regular, daily, weekly basis, and you're adding two and a half songs a week to your playlist. It doesn't get any more competitive than that. So that's why that story does have to tell itself. Right. And you have to find that angle with each single market, each single radio station, each single you know, local promotion person has to find that angle. And that's really how, when I'm talking to them on a weekly conference call, that's really what we discuss, and that's how we break it down.
0: Took my hand, you showed me how You promised me you'd be around Uh-huh, that's
1: right Any uh, two-part question? Uh, favorite projects you've worked over the years and any that you still think to this day should have been bigger than they became?
2: Yeah, there, there are always those. You know, there are always those. One of my favorite projects is going back to Pink. Pink had actually... 2002, Misunderstood, huge album, right. probably 8 million sales worldwide. Um, she released uh, the Try This album right after that, which was a little bit of work for them, and they never were able to really get that completely over the hump. Um, we released the album I'm Not Dead in 2005, I believe. I met Pink in 2004 right when we merged with Arista, which I merged with Arista, the face. Um, We started that project, and the first single was Stupid Girls, which did fine. It was a top 15 record. People liked it. Pink was making a statement. She made an amazing video. Um, And then the second single was Who Knew? Now, the very first time we released Who Knew, it never charted. It got to 42 uh, on the Airplay chart. It was shocking to me just unbelievable because when I hear that song today that's one of those songs I'll hear anytime any place anywhere and it still sticks with me just because it's that amazing melody that Max Martin did uh, and Dr. Luke Um, so about Pink and I are doing a small club run she's playing clubs we're in Washington D.C. we're actually doing one of the very first Sirius XM playback sessions in the studio and we're talking, and she was telling me how in Europe, like, how big things are over there. She's doing arenas at that point. And I'm thinking to myself, here's a girl from Philly that speaks the real deal, is the real truth. How is it that we are not breaking this in America? And a couple months later, we release You in Your Hand. We released it in September of 2006, 27 weeks after we release it. It goes to number one on your chart. Um, and up until DNCE, which just recently was a few weeks longer, but I don't think it's going to get to number one at this point, um, has been, I think, the longest run of any song between charting and going to number one. Right. That, that's a big accomplishment. We release Who Knew. We re-release Who Knew. Right after that, it goes to number one. So that's a memorable story for me, and I feel like that's a turning point in her career and, uh, and mine as well, so... Um, that that's one that's interesting. The first time we released it, I couldn't believe it wasn't a hit. And the second time we released it, it went to number one.
1: So anything that uh, you still, still hear today and think, yeah, that should have been much bigger?
2: Um, there are things like that. Uh, you're going to laugh when I tell you this. Um, the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral released um, the wet, wet, wet cover of, I feel it, what is it? I feel it in my fingers, I feel it in my... Yeah, Love
1: is All love Around. Love is All Around,
2: right? Um, love is in the air, right? No, Love no, is All Around. Love is
1: All Around. Love is All Around. Yeah, 94.
2: So that was something, and I still, when I see Roger Ames, who, as you know, big executive, he says, Rickatelli, that record should have been bigger. <laughs> uh, he tells me that all the time. Um, yeah, there are a few things that are out there. And the funny thing is, like, I'll go back to Melissa Etheridge Come to My Window which peaked at number 19 or 18 on the airplay charts, but was a song that defined her and changed her career, and we sold 4 million albums after that. So sometimes the airplay charts aren't always indicative of how big a song actually is.
1: It's not always about uh, the chart position, at the time, it might take 15, 20 years before you realize, wow, that song actually became a legacy song, like you just said, with Melissa Etheridge.
2: Yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. And that does happen. And it's all about the timing. Things are so, timing is so important with things. And you know, making sure you get a song to be a hit in a certain window becomes important because there are radio stations that may have played a song 700, 800 times that have peaked when you're still trying to tell the story. And they're coming down as you're moving up in other places. And that's where the, the timing gets a little bit off and you don't actually achieve what you want
1: to achieve. Now I'm just thinking about wet, wet, wet. Love is all around. I hadn't thought of that song in a long time. Didn't think we'd be talking about that. Had, neither did I.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: let's uh, let's talk about some projects that uh, R. C. is working on uh, now, Joe. One of the biggest ones is uh, the Zane. You got a number one album. You got a number one uh, single yeah, uh, on tonight. the Hot 100. Yeah, You're going to number one. It's going to be number one this week on the Airplay chart. At radio? Yeah. The
2: expectations are high, but if you look at One Direction, who may be the, were the biggest touring band out there for the last few years, next to it, probably with Taylor, um, they, they were able to accomplish so many things and open the door and keep the door open for other artists to come through with. Um, and the truth is, Zane made a record in Pillow Talk that threaded a needle that One Direction didn't really make, right. where One Direction hit a home run with their core, they were never going to be able to get rhythm radio to really be supportive to them, and they would struggle with airplay in day parts that were between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m., middays in particular, because their records tested very well young but didn't do as well with the older demos. Pillow Talk is that record... Uh, At any number one record for that matter, that can get played in all-day parts. And that's one of the reasons why we were able to accomplish that feat. And um, the time of the Billboard Hot 100, number one, streaming, you can see the role, and you know this better than anybody, Gary. You see the role. Our points really came from streams. So if we didn't have those streaming points, we would not have been number one. And if you go back and look at One Direction, the streaming points they were getting, you know, one, two, three, four years ago, they weren't playing as big a role.
1: Right. So part of it is timing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we talked about Pink. We talked about Sia. Who would have known? Maybe, maybe this doesn't surprise you that Pitbull would come out with a song that samples an Ario Speedwagon song <laughs> from 1981. Yeah,
2: you know, when Pitbull came in to play us that track, it was uh, back in November, and it was when he played it for us in the uh, conference room. It was a small group of us listening to the track, and I kind of felt on one listen like. That's our single, Pit. You need to finish that record. Right. He's like, okay, Poppy, I'll get it done. And <laughs> it took a while for us to actually get to that point. And putting Enrique on it is brilliant because, as you know, Enrique just signed with Sony. He just released his first Latin single with Sony last week, which is going to be a smash. And, um, and Enrique and Pitbull are a great combination. So I'm really excited about that record and this project in general. Uh, that will be coming out shortly.
1: You talk about how long uh, projects can take. You first played me, the, uh, the El King. Song about a year before, X's and O's. It was a hit. Absolutely, remember uh, uh, it was uh, Jesse here in the office was saying you didn't really quite know what to do. I thought it was one listen total hit record, but that's how long some of these things
2: can take. Well, let's let's talk that through because it's an interesting dynamic with America's Sweetheart and X's and O's. So if we aren't able to really get alternative radio and AAA radio to gravitate to X's and O's, would it have been the pop hit that it became? Those formats really do make a difference underneath in, in building your house. You know, that the fact is, is that if we didn't have them, it probably wouldn't have been as big a pop hit as it became. America's Sweetheart, a little different path did not have the same early AAA airplay and alternative airplay. We're getting it now, but Hot AC jumped on it so quickly. And the Hot AC format is very fickled because if you expect that format in particular to research on its own, there's going to be exceptions. The Fight Song is going to be an exception, and maybe Andy Grammar is going to be an exception. But for, for, for the most part, two, three, four hundred spins at that format with a demo that's passive, twenty five thirty four, twenty five fifty four passive demo – It's almost impossible to get it to research by itself. Now, what's happening with America's Sweetheart is we've had to go back. We're getting Alternative Radio on. We're about to chart on the Alternative chart. The thing that's really interesting about it is it's very active. We just did 15,000, 16,000 singles this week. It's selling top 40 in a lot of marketplaces. But we're not getting the call-out research early on. So it's so important. goes back to that timing question to make sure that you have – everything working for you at once. So it's been a little bit more of a struggle on America's Sweetheart than it was on X's and O's, but that's also because people now expect it to be a hit following X's and O's. Right
1: probably should mention you guys had the biggest song of all of 2015. With Uptown Uptown Funk. Funk.
2: Yeah, that record was just a joy to work. I remember going to radio stations and playing it for the first time for people and watching smiles on people's faces. And I'm really excited about that. I'm getting the same thing on the Justin Timberlake record that I'm just starting to set up now. Um, That'll be part of the Troll soundtrack, um, which will be coming out in early May. The single will be out in early May. The album will be out in September. But um, I'm getting the same reaction on that. I'm hoping I have the same results
1: new Justin album full album on the
2: way no uh yeah it will be sometime you know early next year more than likely he's he's just really working on that whenever he's ready he's ready Justin Justin does what he does when he wants to do it and uh, he's working now but um the trolls is really going to be our focus and um it's going to be a big movie for DreamWorks it'll be out in November expecting very big things from it and if the uh, first single from the soundtrack is any indication we're gonna have a really good summer Britney Spears. Britney's really working on a fantastic record. I've heard about four or five songs that I just think are going to be big hits for her. And her sound, she's found a really great groove. And she's working with some new young producers. We um, have uh, an A&R person working on the project uh, that's just really been able to thread the needle. And uh, I'm really excited about it. We're just waiting for, her to finish the, waiting for her to finish the album. And I've played this track for a lot of people over the last couple of months. And the response has been Everything I was hoping for and more. So I'm really excited about that. That'll be a single sometime this summer.
1: Is it a double edged sword in promoting an artist that has this iconic history going back almost 20 years now for Britney? But at the same time, uh, sometimes people just want to hear something brand new.
2: Yeah, I've promoted every Britney Spears single since she's released. I was on the very tail end of Hit Me Baby one more time, and the only single I didn't promote for her was Scream and Shout, which was Will I Am's record. So um, for me, with Britney and what you're asking, Every artist has a a cycle. Um, And there are times, though, when artists that are as talented as Britney and as successful as Britney and as iconic as Britney, there's no reason why they can't have multiple cycles. And that's kind of what we're dealing with with her.
1: Tell us something about Britney that maybe we don't know because you you know her on Mm -hmm. a pretty personal
0: level.
2: I've known her for a long time. Um, Britney loves what she does. She loves it. She loves being a mom as well. And um, she is as warm hearted and pleasant as you would imagine her to be. And she's, you know, seeing somebody grow up from their 16 or 17 now to now, um, you really see the woman that she's become over the years. And more than just an artist, she's, you know, a complete woman. And um, she's always been a pleasure to work with, always, always gives it
1: her all. Kind of forget that these are people. They're not just artists. They're not just a face you see on, on, on an album cover. Absolutely, that goes for all of them.
0: I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so
1: hard. Enough. Miley Cyrus.
2: Miley is like an enigma. She is a fantastic, talented woman, and um, she's also so driven and so competitive. And um, I really, really do enjoy her company. Um, she's so quick witted, uh, she's extremely talented and, um, you know, she, she likes to work and she, again, it's her vision. She does what she wants to do. So happy she was able to put this last project out on her own with the flaming lips because that's really where her heart and head was. And to try to talk an artist out of something like that, that is not our place. It is just, isn't, it isn't the label's place. This is her vision again. So I'm kind of glad that we did what we did with that particular project. And I'm sure you're going to be seeing
1: and hearing from her soon. How much did you know about that project?
2: I knew a lot about it because we sat down and we had a lot of conversations about how, what we were going to do with it. And uh, again, it was something that she was very passionate about. And, and we took meetings with her and, and had long discussions with her about it. And because she was so passionate about that project, we had to back her, which is what we did. And end the story, you know, it, it, it did what it did. She's happy with the results it had, and she's happy that she did what she did and the tour that she had you know, back at the beginning of the year.
1: Was there concern that coming off the, the huge album with Wrecking Ball and, and, and the other hits, that suddenly this album is coming out? It's not really on RCA. It's not for sale the same way. She didn't know, want to sell her, it. Yeah. She
2: wanted to give it to her fans, yeah. and she didn't want people to have to pay for it. There was no concern because artists like Miley Cyrus are, again, you know, one in a million like Sia. And knowing how talented and creative she is... I'm not worried about it. She's going to make the next record and, and, and the record after that, and people are going to gravitate to it. Fans are going to gravitate.
1: And Christina Aguilera, new music She's coming.
2: working right now, yeah. I've heard a couple things. Uh, we're in the middle of making a project. Uh, Keith Naftali, who you know, Gary, uh, former programmer extraordinaire, KMEL, right. and head of A&R here at RCA, uh, has been working with Christina. And um, I've heard a few things, and it's going to be exciting. It'll be later on this year. And
1: uh, what are other new artists? What else is uh, coming out of the I RCA? signed an, I an artist to signed my, signed my. I have an
2: imprint here at RCA called Golden Retriever. And I signed an artist called Frankie. She's from the Bay Area. She's actually going to be in town later today. Straight pop artist, um, went to school in the Bay Area. Uh, unbelievably creative, very vivacious, warm personality. You meet her, you just want to hug her. And um, she's going to release a song in the next couple of weeks called New Obsession. And um, there's a song called Problems, Problems, which already has two million streams on Spotify. Uh, she wrote a song called Strangers that I think is going to be a huge record for her. Really, really, really excited about the project. Uh, it's uh, something that will be coming under my, my imprint here called Golden Retriever. And um, I'm hoping she's a force to be reckoned with. I really am.
1: And that's a nice nod to uh, to Nipper, the RCA uh, dog, Golden Retriever.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, well, I have two Golden Retrievers at home and <laughs> Um, the logo is a golden retriever. Uh, you'll see it here shortly, and it's a nice little nod to Nipper. You're right. Uh, I'm excited about Tanache. I feel like Tanache is a star in the making. We're still just waiting for that right song to come down the pike, and I think that she, she will nail it eventually. I'm 100% sure that that's going to happen for us. I'm excited about Grace, which we've already discussed. Right. Uh, I feel like that's really going to break. She's got a huge voice, really a fantastic artist for the label overall. Um, Alan Walker is a record that is number one in Shazam for seven weeks outside of the United States. And you can see that that record's been a huge hit around the world. That's going to be a big, big, big summer record. Just We're, debuted on the Hot 100. Just debuted this week on Hot 100, I think at like 92 or something right. like that. Um, so that, that, that song's going to be big. Remember we talked about that song in May when the summer ends and it's going to be in contention for song of the year, summer
1: song of the year. That's uh, probably uh, one of the most exciting things, Joe, about uh, this job. You you don't know six months uh, what artists you're going to be working. It's always changing.
2: It's always changing, and it is exciting. And I love being a part of that. And I love being a part of the strategy and execution of that. And um, I love being able to give the artists the opportunity that they want to have and they deserve.
1: Joe Riccatelli, Executive VP, GM of RCA. Thanks for coming. Thanks, out. Gary. I
0: can see